Today in the Senate, big tech was back in the spotlight. The CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter appeared via video screen to answer a stream of questions from lawmakers. Why should we trust you with so much power? Why shouldn't we regulate you more? More divisiveness, more time on the platform, more time on the platform. The company makes more money. Uh, Does that bother you, what it's done to our politics? Are the Democrats correct that you all are the legitimate referees over our political speech? Lawmakers are focused on what we see in our social media feeds and what we don't see, especially during a presidential election. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Wednesday, October 28th. Coming up on the show, why tech companies are being taken to task for policing content and the fight over the law that protects them. It can be hard to see the challenges the people we work with are facing. Addressing these invisible struggles can make us and our companies healthier. Join Holly Robinson-Pete on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Today's Senate hearing took issue with recent moves by tech companies to moderate content. But missteps from the past were very much top of mind. We all know what happened in 2016, that Russian operatives did masquerading as Americans, used social media platform tools to interact and attempt to deceive tens of millions of social media users in the United States. In the last presidential election, Facebook and Twitter were heavily criticized for not doing enough to stop disinformation from spreading on their platforms. In 2016, you know, according to the federal government, there was Russian interference. That's Bob McMillan. He covers cybersecurity in the tech world. There was a figure called Guccifer 2.0, who investigators say was linked to Russian military intelligence, who showed up on Twitter, claimed to be an activist, and dumped a bunch of documents that had been obtained through hacking for the purposes of influencing the election. Those emails were stolen from the Democratic Party and spread across the Internet, including on Twitter. But it wasn't just Guccifer 2.0. According to the government, Twitter and Facebook had thousands of Russian-linked accounts spreading misinformation and stirring up trouble online. So since then, the companies have been focused on what they should do to ensure their platforms aren't misused again in an election year. These companies have had four years to prepare for the 2020 election, and one of the problems that they've had top of mind during that entire time has been How do we not screw this up? This was a really high priority because this is something that had caused the the chief executives of these companies to be called before Congress. This was a black eye on their reputations. And maybe even most importantly, this is something that a lot of people that work at these companies felt very personally. You know, when you go into work every day and you're working for a company that is seen to be helping the Russians That's a bad feeling. And I think a lot of people working at both companies didn't want to have that feeling this year. And more than that, they wanted to really feel like they had taken it head on. 
In recent weeks, both companies have announced a stream of new policies to moderate content around the election. Facebook has made a number of steps. So they're going to block new political ads the week before the election. They are going to be flagging anyone who makes a premature claim of victory. They're going to limit the amount of messages that you can be able to send through Messenger. For its part, Twitter has removed accounts associated with conspiracy theories or bots. It's taken down tweets or put labels and warning messages on tweets that it says contain misleading information. Twitter and Facebook both have been thinking about these things, and in particular, they've been thinking about what's called a hack and leak. A hack and leak. Like what happened with Guccifer 2.0 back in 2016. Twitter and Facebook needed to figure out how they would respond to another incidence of hacked information going viral on their platforms. So they made slightly different bets. On Facebook, the newsfeed is super important. So... Facebook's policy was let's de-amplify the story, let's prevent it from going viral by limiting the chance of it appearing in somebody's newsfeed. When you look at Twitter, it's much more just a, a fire hose of links. So Twitter's bed was if we think there's a hack and leak operation going on, let's just prevent people from sharing the links, sharing the links to the source of the material. Let's just shut it down. These were both tactics that were designed to hit the center of the place where they go viral and to slow it down right at the heart of it. One was a little bit more subtle. One was like a hammer coming down hard on the leaked information. And heading into this election year, 2020, what have Twitter and Facebook said about how they were feeling about misinformation on their platforms and how prepared they are for it? Well, <laughs> I mean, you never want to brag about, like, how tough your system is, you know, because that's seen as, like, a challenge to hackers, right? Like, oh, we're, we, you know, we've got this misinformation thing down. Come and get us, Russia. Like, nobody would ever <laughs> say anything like that. But they've talked a lot about these policies. And inside Facebook, the executives even acted out the policies. According to Bob's sources, Facebook execs role-played how they would respond to an email dump during this election season. There's a sense that everybody felt there's a really good chance there's going to be what they call an October surprise. There's going to be a last-minute dump of documents that had potential to turn the election, to swing the election one way or the other. So I think this has been top of mind for many, many people at both of these companies for years. And then a story broke that caught the company's attention. The New York Post published an exclusive story based on a bunch of emails uh, relating to Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. The story claimed to have obtained a cache of his emails, to have analyzed them, and to found interesting things about the emails. There was an email that claimed to be a confirmation of a meeting between Joe Biden and someone from the Ukrainian company Burisma, a meeting that Biden had said never happened. There were a number of allegations about Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. But the thing that caught the attention of many people in my world was the provenance of the emails. Where did these emails come from? According to the Post story, the emails came from a laptop that was dropped off at a computer repair shop and never picked up. 
Then eventually the material made its way to Rudy Giuliani, who provided it to the Post. Giuliani, you know, the Wall Street Journal has reported that he was in Ukraine looking for information on Biden. There are connections between him and someone known to be a Russian asset. So Giuliani's role in getting information on Joe Biden raises red flags as well. So this is a fast-breaking story. There are red flags that are raised about it. It could be a Russian influence operation. It might not be. No one knows. And Facebook and Twitter are seeing this material go viral on their platforms. What do they do? What did they do? (laughs) So they executed their policies. Facebook put the story in what they call a fact-check queue, and that meant that it was much less likely to appear on people's news feeds. They allowed people to discuss it. Donald Trump posted about it on his Facebook page. It actually got a fair bit of engagement on Facebook, but it didn't get that amplification that comes from being favored on the newsfeed. Over at Twitter, they hit the panic button. Twitter suggested the emails might have come from a hack. They said... Nobody can link to this story. That was their plan for hack and leak documents. There was no question that these were emails that were purported to belong to somebody else that were being published. In at least one email that I saw, there was a private email address and a cell phone number published with the New York Post story. They don't allow you to publish these documents, and especially if there's personal information being published. That's a no-no. So... That triggered the Twitter hack and leak policy, right? The problem was their hack and leak policy was written in anticipation of an event where the hacker shows up and starts disseminating these documents. This wasn't a hacker showing up. This was the New York Post showing up and disseminating them. So even though there were red flags raised about the story, this was coming from a major U.S. media outlet. And that was something Twitter hadn't anticipated. Twitter also locked some accounts that had tweeted a link to the New York Post story, including the New York Post's main account. That account remains locked. No one has seriously challenged the authenticity of the emails, and intelligence officials have said the laptop is authentic. The Biden campaign has denied the allegations in the story, including that alleged meeting with the Ukrainian executive. Did what Facebook and Twitter do, was it effective? In the tech world, we have this thing called the Streisand effect. Is that for Barbara Streisand? Yes, it's for Barbara Streisand. It dates back to the early days of the internet when somebody flew over Barbara Streisand's house and published photographs of her house from above. And Barbara Streisand tried to stop those photographs from circulating on the internet. And by doing that, by trying to stop, trying to censor the photographs, the story about Barbara Streisand's photographs became one of the most, you know, the top stories on the Internet. It went viral because of her attempt to stop it. By the end of the day, the New York Post story broke. The Streisand effect was a trending topic on Twitter. So long-winded way of saying that what happened was the story became not so much about the allegations, but about the reaction of the tech giants to the story. And the Streisand effect 
is one reason why the tech CEOs were in the hot seat today. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Facebook and Twitter's moves to de-amplify the New York Post story were met with a ton of criticism. This criticism was especially aimed at Twitter, since it took the more aggressive approach, the hammer, and blocked the link from being shared. And part of the problem was, when Twitter blocked all of these links, it wasn't 100% clear why they were doing it to the user. You know, I tried to tweet one of these New York Post stories, and Twitter just said, you can't do this. (laughs) You know, so it didn't really tell me exactly why it was doing this. And by the end of the day, the New York Post story broke. Jack Dorsey, the Twitter CEO, showed up on Twitter and said, we didn't do a very good job with this one. So right off the bat, the Twitter CEO criticized his own company for not communicating why it was doing what it was doing very well. Then Twitter reversed its position. They'd said, look, we're not going to block these links anymore. So now you can tweet them. But within a couple of days, they went from, uh, we're not communicating very well to, we did the wrong thing. And in today's hearing, Twitter's CEO took heat for the company's move. Mr. Dorsey, who the hell elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? We're not doing that. Uh, And this is why I opened... um, this hearing with calls for more transparency. We realize we need to earn trust more. We realize that more accountability is needed to show our intentions and to show the outcomes. More generally, lawmakers questioned the CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter about how they police content and whether the companies should maintain the protection they have under the law. Section 230 has also given these internet platforms the ability to control, stifle, and even censor content in whatever manner meets their respective standards. The time has come for that free pass to end. What it all comes down to is a clause in the 1996 Communications Decency Act called Section 230, which provides fundamental protections to internet companies. The protections it provides are basically twofold. They provide protections against liability lawsuits for things that are published on the platform. So in other words, if I go to Facebook and I write whatever crazy thing I want to write on Facebook, you can't sue Facebook and say they're liable for my crazy opinions. 
The other thing is it provides liability protection as well for when they take things down. So it lets them take things down and it lets them not be sued for things that are published on their platform. You know, it's basically the idea that these are neutral platforms that shouldn't be completely responsible for things that their users post. But people are saying, well, if they're censoring the New York Post, maybe they shouldn't enjoy those protections. In response, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg opened the door to reforming the law. Section 230 helped create the internet as we know it. It has helped new ideas get built and our companies to spread American values around the world, and we should maintain this advantage. But the internet has also evolved, and I think that Congress should update the law to make sure that it's working as intended. And Twitter CEO Dorsey cautioned that losing the protection would be bad for the internet. Section 230 is the most important law protecting internet speech. And removing Section 230 will remove speech from the internet. I mean, if you're a global platform with 2 billion plus users, there's always going to be somebody who is unhappy with decisions you're making with respect to content moderation. So to a certain extent, it's a no-win situation for them. It really comes down to this question of should the platforms be regulated in terms of what they are allowed to post on them or not. And to date, they have not been liable for things that are posted on them, and they've been allowed to police their own content as long as they make a good faith effort to do that, to sort of have standards about what they're going to include, because nobody wants, you know, complete anarchy on these platforms. You know, we have community standards about what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, and they're allowed to enforce that stuff. So the question is, should the government step in at this point and dictate how they do that? That's really what's being debated right now. That's all for today, Wednesday, October 28th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to Jeff Horowitz for his reporting on this story. And a quick disclaimer, News Corp, which owns The Wall Street Journal, also owns The New York Post. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.